Welcome to the Compliance Time, AML and Financial Crime Podcast. Here, you can learn from compliance experts, enthusiasts and creators who are contributing to the fast-moving and dynamic field of financial compliance. Hello everyone and welcome to our 21st episode. In today's episode, guest is Stephen Brent Sargent from Canada. You may have already seen the amazing content he creates on LinkedIn and not only or maybe you have managed to attend some of his recent events like Ask Me Anything or other events he's actively taking part in. On top of being cryptocurrency expert, Stephen is also sharing his tips on networking and personal branding. He's a world-class connector and helps uh, finding top talent in the cryptocurrency and traditional AML industry. So as you probably guessed from the title, this would be an episode in which we'll talk about personal branding and how to stand out from the crowd. AML and compliance space has hundreds of thousands of professionals working across the globe. As you'll hear from Stephen, applying for a job is easy, but actually doing the work to show your unique skills and brand is something that can really make difference. Additionally, this episode will have you thinking if you defined your dream job and how does that look for you. So without further ado, let's jump into the questions with Stephen. Hello, Stephen, and welcome to Compliance Time. Very happy to have you on. This is a very long overdue interview <laughs> because I, 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 I thought that we should make an episode so long ago, but I'm glad that we finally uh, managed to uh, catch up and record this. That's amazing. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, we talked a long time ago. I think you were on like episode three or four, and I don't even know if I'd started my podcast at that time. So um, maybe I was a little jealous. Maybe I was waiting for me to get my podcast <laughs> up and running before I came on yours. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that we started sort of a, at the same time, um, the, the podcasting. I, I saw your announcement of a podcast, uh, starting a podcast, um, and I was like, oh, but I am going to start a podcast. What a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> That's why that's why I announced it so that if anyone was planning on it now it looks like you're copying me. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Uh I'm so happy uh, to be here. So, let's start by telling us a bit more about yourself and your career in compliance in case there are some people that still don't know you. <laughs> well, my name is Stephen Brent Sargent. Uh, I offer consulting services to a top cryptocurrency exchange, Bitfinex. Uh, you know, three years ago, I was a paralegal uh, and I was looking, I was working for a big fintech in Canada. I was trying to do my job better. So I was trying to learn more about fintech uh, at the time. And this was about May 2015. And everything at that time was cryptocurrency and blockchain. The price was probably about $300. And and then I decided I don't even want to be a paralegal anymore. I really want to get into this industry, but I had no sales skills. I have no technical skills. I still probably don't have very many technical skills, but uh, I figured that I reached out to one of the podcasters at that time. And he's like, well, you can transition via compliance. And he was talking a lot about eventually regulations were going to come into play. And this was, you know, three to five years ago. So at that time I took my A cams, I got involved. I started working at HSBC. But even when I was there doing AML investigations, I had a burning sensation to be in cryptocurrency or at least a fintech company. Uh, and then the opportunity came around when Bitfinex was looking to start their or at least build on their AML program. That was one of the first people that they looked to when they hired Peter Warwick. So 
it was really it was always my dream to be in cryptocurrency in Canada. That was a little bit tough. There was really only one big cryptocurrency exchange there at the time, CoinSquare. Um, so you know, having the opportunity to work remotely and abroad uh, for an international exchange is probably a dream come true for me at the time. And why why the cryptocurrency? What do you like most in it? You know, to be quite honest, it was a strategic play. You know, when I got into AML, I started talking to a lot of professionals. I saw people that had 20 to 30 years experience. I'm like, there's no way I can catch up in that. What's the, what's the future of AML going to look like, right? Mm-hmm. What's the future of anti-money laundering going to look like? And I decided that cryptocurrency was going to be uh, one of those things for me at the time. So um, when I looked and I was like, you know, it's fairly new field. There's not a lot of people that have experience in this field. So realistically, I'd be starting the same time they did when it came to my knowledge. And I just felt like financial crime compliance and AML, whoever studies the hardest, whoever wants to learn the most uh, has an equal shot where when you're a paralegal, I've always felt the lawyer had the final say, no matter how good your ideas were or how much you research and specifically on cryptocurrency, the lawyer would kind of, you know, their eight years of schooling and articling, they kind of came in with the final say where I felt uh, compliance was more so whoever learned the most and whoever wanted to do the most. And if today you were a paralegal and you wanted to move to compliance, what's the new? Because now cryptocurrency is evolving much more, right? And there are many SMEs. So if we imagine that it was today that you were the paralegal wanting to go to compliance, which would be the new thing that you would want to jump onto? You know, that's funny. I would still say cryptocurrency hasn't really made it mainstream. There's some subject matter experts, but you're still looking at someone has the most, maybe three to five years compliance and cryptocurrency experience. I hear a lot about AI, but the thing about artificial intelligence is everyone that's using it is saying that they're the only ones that are actually using it and nobody else is. But you go to every company and they say the exact same thing that we're really doing AI, nobody else is. So I don't really know how much, I think a combination, I think technology period, I think you're going to have to start looking that there's only a matter of time before AI and machine learning starts to uh, change the way you do your investigations. I think about how much money these organizations are spending to put bodies in the seats. And I think regulators right now like that, but eventually for the amount of the possibility that the, an analyst or an investigator is right on a case, which is very subjective. Um, you start going to AI and machine learning. You think like, Hey, I think I can get a computer in there to do a, a pretty good job or at least be almost as accurate. I think once the regulators change their point of view and start accepting the technology, you're going to see more, Uh, organizations, especially the big banks and reporting entities, start moving towards a lot lot more cost-effective method in investigating their cases. Yeah, that's that's true. I I did have a couple of interviews with AI companies and the uh, people who are working on new initiatives around that. And it, it seems that in many cases, it can bring a lot of benefits. Of course, not completely to change the, in my view, it cannot completely change currently the investigation process that has to be also human-made, but it can enhance it pretty well. So, um, yeah, that, that's a thing, I guess. What are some, you mentioned the podcast, but what are all the projects and initiatives that you're currently doing right now? What are you engaged in? <laughs> I got a lot going on. You know, I started out. <laughs> 
I started with a, a collective of people. So what I've noticed is I have a lot of opportunities going my way. What I also noticed is I have very little time. So I tried to create a group of people that can work on these projects with me. Um, I also realized I'm not that great at leading groups like that. I like people kind of doing their own thing because I think once I get too involved, I like to do things my own way. So I'm working through that. We've, we've already produced some really great work um, and I've seen some really great uh, collaborations from people. So we're hoping to release some of those things in December. There's different par- projects, including, um, you know, things like STR and SAR writing, uh, an AMLE magazine, something short, sweet. Uh, I love working with collaborating with people like Susan and the TCAE. So anything, any opportunity I get to help out professionals. But what I really like is thinking of like, how can I make an investigator or someone in compliance reach their full potential. That's where I focus a lot of my energy. I do every Friday, I do an ask me anything where people can come on and ask me questions. It's a little selfish. It was more so for me to get all my calls in in one hour versus taking a 20 minute call there or half an hour there. But really what I wanted to create and foster was uh, a judgment free zone where people can come in and tell me exactly what they're doing. I can give my opinions and give them some things that have worked and haven't worked for me. Um, for 2021, man, I think I'm, I'm going to be doing a lot of things. I think I'm going to dabble, dabble in the recruitment space a little bit because I see a real need there for more human connection in, in there. Uh, I might even come up with a children's book. You never, you never know. I'm going to keep the people guessing is what I'm going to do. Will the children's book be on the AML compliance topic? It will have to be because you know what I, I noticed, yes. is that every, you know, firemen have their own book, uh, all, all, you know, police officers, everyone has their own book. And then you don't see anything for like a compliance officer, although we do a lot of the different functions and, you know, save people in a lot of different areas. Um, I just think it would be nice if you have a child, a niece, a nephew or so, someone close to you where you can kind of read a book about the things that you do as a compliance officer. I think that would be kind of cool. Right, because sometimes I still struggle to explain, for example, to my grandma what exactly I'm doing. <laughs> so maybe um, in the future, you know, children will know what compliance is. And it's one of those new fields, right? Like really since 9-11 is really when you had like the AML and compliance regimes uh, for the most part. Um and what I've been noticing is a lot of people, like, they don't start in this field. Like, I never went to school thinking that, oh, I want to be a compliance or AML officer. Now they're offering more courses and stuff like that. So I feel a lot of people that have been in this industry for a while have a, have a story of how they got into it, right? Uh, similar to cryptocurrency. Nobody went to school at, originally to get involved in cryptocurrency. So you always have an interesting story as to how you got into this career path. Yeah, right. I, I totally agree. I have seen um, people in compliance have so many diverse backgrounds <laughs> and have done so different things before going to compliance and there are different things that excite them um, all the time. Um, you mentioned about uh, Ask Me Anything, but I also noticed recently you had a very awesome LinkedIn post, um, which was on personal branding and um it had amazing tips. Can you please tell me what does personal branding mean to you? And um, how can we have a better brand while working in compliance? You know, what I noticed about compliance is that it was very, um, 
dry like it's very dry feel like when you're talking about legislation you know if you went to a, a cocktail party and you start talking about legislation like people's eyes are going to roll in the back of their like nobody wants to hear it so what i found is that there's so many creative people in compliance but because nobody's really stepped out of that box and done anything creative um that's what i feel for me that's the angle i took personal brand to me is basically the story that people are going to be talking about when you're not there and i know people have different aspects of personal brand but you know if 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 I'm talking to a colleague, if I'm talking to Susan from TCAE who knows you as well, and we're having a conversation, what are they going to say about Anitza? And what are they going to say about what she's doing with the pod? You know, like it's it, to me, it's it's the value that you've brought to somebody that you're not there to actually hear the conversation. And when I got into this industry, I really wanted to focus on, you know, what what are the things I know well and what value can I add? And obviously those things have changed. I never thought I was going to be teaching people about networking or personal branding. I never thought I was going to be a speaker or write articles. My goal was when I started out, there was very little information to, for me to kind of navigate how to get into AML. And when I spoke to almost 500 people in AML, you start to notice a lot of trends from the people that actually respond. You start to notice things. You start to hear certain things. And I was like, well, what if I took that information and gave it back to people that were just starting out like me? And what I noticed is that a lot of people that started we're starting out would then reach out to me like, Hey, how did you know this? How did... And then I would just, and then you start getting your own answers. You start asking your own questions and you start noticing things like some of the, you know, discrimination things I talk about on uh, LinkedIn when it comes to foreign professionals coming to Canada and try and find compliance jobs. So uh, I think your personal brand is everything that you want people to kind of know about you. And where I think a lot of people have the struggle with their personal brand is they're trying to do things that would probably get them a job instead of doing things that come natural and authentic to them. Uh, Not realizing those are the things that really people are looking for when they're hiring, you know? Anyone can hire somebody with six years of AML and KYC experience, but they want to know you. What are you doing in your extracurricular activities? You know, like if I looked at you and I'm like, oh, you work for a big bank, but, you know, I don't know this at first. I noticed that you have a podcast. I'm like, anyone that takes time to do a podcast must really enjoy compliance because it's a lot of work to do a podcast. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I think, and that's why I feel like the winners know what you're doing, right? Maybe not everyone see, everyone's like, oh, podcast, everyone has a podcast. But the winners that have any kind of idea of how much work it takes you on top of your job and the fact that you're able to keep a job and still keep up with the podcast shows how dedicated you are to the industry. So to to me, that's your personal brand, everything you're doing outside of work. Now, if you wanted to go leave your job, not saying that you do, but if you want to go leave your job, I'm sure your value within your job is only as good as how much they value your work, right? But now with the podcast, people are like, hmm, you know, she does add an interesting aspect. Um, they can see value outside of your job. If I want to poach you, I'm not going to call your work and say, Hey, how good is Denisa? Cause I really want to take her away from you. I'm never going to get that information. Right. But I can see now how much work Denisa puts in aside from her job. That's what would attract me to say, like, that's the kind of person I want working on my team because that's the type of person that's going to put in extra effort as well as her job. Yeah. But this again comes out to what, if you do what you like, because there are many people that I guess compliance is just a um, transitional job, something. And I actually, I started with the same idea when I first entered into AML. Actually, I thought that, okay, I have no idea what that is. I'm just going to give it a shot. But, you know, 
it's a start. I just finished university. Somebody has to pay the bills now. <laughs> they told me now you are adult after you, after you graduate university. So I was like, okay, let, let's give it a shot. It's something that I've never heard before that much. I mean, I, I've watched some movies, but then I really figured out that this is, um, this is something of passion, something that I, I like to do, um, that I find interesting, that I enjoy reading after <laughs> work, even um, you know after five. If you're still reading and you're curious, um, and I just want to say that the compliance time LinkedIn is so amazing. I started it from scratch just um, in the beginning of this year, and now there are over one thousand six hundred people there it's not a lot it's not huge but um i have connected with people who are in only aml and compliance fields so all the time that i open that linkedin profile it's so great my feed is full of only relevant interesting articles happenings events like dcie or whatever um anything that's going on is there so i actually much less visit my own linkedin <laughs> as opposed to the compliance time one but if you really think about it, like, it's funny that you hedge that by saying it's not a lot. That's a huge number. You have to really think about right now what's going on. People are home. Their kids are home. Who has time to listen to a podcast, really? You know, so mm -hmm. when you think about how much downloads you have, and, you know, I was listening to a podcast the other day while I was shoveling my driveway, because that's really the few times I get to listen to anything uh, without kids in, the, in, my, in my ear. Um, but, uh, you know, it was saying that, you, you know, you're not entitled to an engaged audience. So the fact that you have that engaged audience means you really work for it and you really provide something of substance and value. So although some of these other podcasts have millions and tens of thousands, you know, like I looked at my podcast, I'm like 700 plus people download and listen to listen to me talk about you know, relevant matters. So I think what you're doing, you should never hedge. I think that's a huge number. And the fact that you've been able to build a community, uh, especially so much of the Toronto community, I love that, uh, but around the world and people can kind of look to you as a, like a checkpoint, like, oh, this is somebody that's actually done a podcast on their own from scratch. There's no excuses now for anybody that's wanting to start out and do their own thing, you know, because they would look to the ACAMS podcast and say, well, you know, they have lots of money. They have it professionally, professionally done. It's so easy for them. They can look at you and say, hey, this is someone grassroots that has a community of 1600 engaged people. Uh, and I think that's what's most relevant is you can have millions of followers and connections, but are they engaged into what you're saying? And are you adding value to that community? So uh, congratulations, because I think that's a huge number. Uh, and that's something to be really proud about. Especially now, every, everyone says, well, everyone has a podcast. That's true. But not everyone has a valuable podcast. So I think that's, that's something really important that you're doing. Thank you. And I am really proud of all the people that are on and that are listening and that are um, connecting with the, the podcast profile. That's really awesome. I'm, I'm always very happy with, uh, you know, every single person that is being accepted to Compliance Time page or um, when I refresh the downloads on the um, app that I'm uh, using um, to track the numbers. So, I mean, it, it's really cool. And um, yeah, for sure. The more the merrier, as they say, I think it's popular to have a podcast nowadays or it's like a growing trend. Um, but um, it, I, I don't think that um, every everyone can add their own value with the podcast. Um, and I guess it's the same with the personal branding while we were speaking about that. Um, 
there's so many people and there are growing numbers of people in compliance. So your unique branding and offer is, um, is not that unique maybe at some point, but I, I think we can find uniqueness, right? Still. And what I want to mention too, is I think people see what you've done and they just want to jump to that. So they want to just release one podcast and have a 1600 person community and have thousands of downloads. But I think that's where they're going to, they're going to lose it. I don't think, you know, I, I always ask people like, you know, what's your business intentions? Cause there's always a business aspect of it. I love doing business, although I don't really care for the money. I just love being, I like business minded stuff, but what I think people have to realize is that it took you a lot to get to where you are. So I think what happens is people want to do something they want to post, and this is to the personal brand point, they want to post an amazing piece of content or a report that they did, or they want to, they want to release a podcast and then they do. And then they're stuck with the numbers. Like why did only three people like that? Or why did only four people download that? And three of those four people are my family members that live in my house. And what people have to remember is that you also have to engage. The reason why you have such a great community is because you're engaging with your community. So you're giving, and then people are also giving back to you where people have this amazing 50 page report and they think they can just post it on LinkedIn and everyone's going to go crazy over this report, but that person is never engaged with the community whatsoever. So I think what people have to remember is you have to give the amount of value. What I was even going to release it today and I might still, I wanted to post a challenge to the job seekers is I want you for the next 35 days or how many other days until 2021 is to stop applying for jobs. I want you to go look for three people that you want to connect with on LinkedIn every single day and figure out ways that you can add them value. And I guarantee if they did that versus looking for a job by the end, by 2021, they would have job offers coming to them. But people don't, I think the majority of people don't want to do that because it takes a lot of time and effort. Uh, and I think that's why a lot of people are struggling with their job search. And that's why you'll see me posting so much online right now, because I think people are trying to take shortcuts and blame COVID and blame the job market. But the really reality, is it has nothing to do with the job market it has to do with them because we're seeing people hired every single day maybe you should do it you should you should post it as a 30-day challenge i mean maybe not 30 day because i don't think there are 30 days to the end of the it's year it's okay they have to take they have to take <laughs> christmas and box they have to take christmas boxing day off too right we have to give them a couple i think there's 37 days left or something like that yeah so you see 30-day challenge um in which job seekers can do something amazing before Christmas, because anyway, now a lot of hiring is closed. I guess it's not a great period for. Um, yeah, I, I think if you stopped applying, you wouldn't know this. <laughs> if, if you're not getting interviews, if you haven't got interviews now, you're not going to get them by 2021. But yeah, I think people have to really stop stop being so short-sighted. And I'm very vocal about that because I used to be the same way too. I look back at my messages from 2016 where I'm telling people like, oh, do you think there's a job that might suit my skills? Can, can you let me know? And I'm like, who would actually like look for jobs for me? It didn't even make any sense, but I get it. So I get where people are coming from and I get why they think that way. Um, but I really want people to start being more creative and actually using their time and energy right because you know the reason why people apply to so many jobs and then complain about applying to so many jobs is applying to jobs is easy they don't have to think they're just copying and pasting and that's easy starting a podcast that's hard nobody wants to do that i want to do that <laughs> no, just <laughs> well, well you've done it uh, but... but i i i really don't like applying for jobs actually 
Nope, nobody does, but they do it because it's easy, right? And yeah. that's why you see hundreds of applicants on jobs two days after they're posted on LinkedIn because it's easy to do that. Whereas, you know, writing your own blog or vlog or doing videos about AML, that's tough work. You know, you have to do the editing, the, you know, that's tougher work. But that's what they realize. If they can do that, that would attract more people. Like if someone said, who do you know in Poland? I'm going to say you, you know, I mean, like, but there's probably hundreds of compliance professionals in Poland, but I don't know any of them. Mm -hmm. Right. People are going to people are going to look for the easiest thing for them, that including hiring managers and employers. They want to look for the easiest person. They don't want to dig through a thousand applicants to find the right person. If someone said compliance in Poland, right away, my mind goes to you. And then I, even if you didn't want the job, I'd reach out to you and say, hey, do you have anyone in your trusted network? And that's really the way most jobs go, right? They look internally first. They ask yeah. the internal person, do they know anyone that they trust? And then they post it or sometimes they even post it because they have to and they already have the job filled. So I think if people start, professionals start understanding the way the job market actually works um, and then they would focus more on their personal brand. Um, but it's funny, like when you go, you know, when you go to school, if they said to do anything, if they said jump on one leg for five days to get your degree, people would do it in order to get the degree because they know if they did it, they would get the degree. If I said to post on LinkedIn for five days in a row and I couldn't show you a job on the end, people won't do it, right? So it's funny the way yeah. the mentality, you know, when you're a student, you do whatever it takes to get that certificate. But then, you, do, you know, for a good career, a good job, you don't want to follow those same steps because nobody can actually promise you when you're completing those steps that you'll get that good job. But I'm saying it's there, but, you know, it's hard to show people that. It, you don't have to promise anything, I think, but for sure people will experience the change. Um, I also had some... Um, time when you know it was hard to shift from one position to another for um even a couple of months i was applying a lot but then i figured out that there is some uh problem there right maybe my cv was updated or maybe i'm not applying right so um for me what worked was mentorship i uh just um took a person that um, I knew and I told them, this is what I do now. It needs not working. <laughs> so tell me what, what can I improve? Like from a, a different side, from a different angle, what, what can I do better? Because obviously it's not from applying a job or because I, I, I don't know that or, or this. It's just because I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, so for me that worked. But recently you had an event on networking secrets for job seekers. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how did it go and what were some of the key outcomes for the participants? Uh, you know, the networking thing is, is strange because I think people, and I see a lot of it, um, maybe even you see some of it too, having a podcast is a lot of people just reach out to you really looking for jobs. And I don't think that's a, a great way to network. Um, and you know, I try to coach people on to staying away from that. I want to teach them how to build meaningful connections. Like when we talked, you know, I think if people realize like the people that you think have no way of helping you are probably the people that are going to help you the most. Uh, and you just never know who somebody knows. I believe a lot in serendipity. I believe a lot in synergies. So I, I just think if you're reaching out and having a genuine connection with people, and that would be part of the challenge is, you know, reach out to those people, do not ask them for a job and just connect with them. But I think what happens is people really, you know, when you're, and I understand when you're desperate for a job and it's getting really tough, um, you start 
doing things that might seem a little desperate, not realizing those are the exact reasons why you're not going to get hired because people are looking for people with confidence and resourcefulness. So uh, I think the networking secret was to be show people the ability to connect with somebody uh, and getting them to reply. You know, just because you send somebody a connection note doesn't mean that they're going to automatically reply to them, especially if you're telling them about how many years experience you have, because already they know that you're you're fishing for a job. But they might look into your record and say like, go back to like, Oh, like I see a lot of people, they transition into compliance. So they start out in hospitality or they have a college degree in hospitality. And I'll, I'll reach out to them and say, Hey, like, why did you transition from being a chef to getting into compliance? Like I would much rather eat food all day. And I add in my own humor. I'm trying to get people to do a little bit more of that. Uh, there was somebody I just connected to and uh, I knew the deputy manager there and I'm like, Oh, like you must be the sheriff. Cause this person's a deputy. Either they're going to find that really, really funny or really, really stupid. But if they <laughs> find it funny, then I know that's going to be a good connection because I know they understand my sense of humor. Uh, and then we're going to connect. And I think people try to act a certain way in order to get a job or to connect with somebody to get a job where they should really be acting like themselves. And I know I probably ruin a lot of speaking engagements or opportunities because of the way I talk, the things I talk about, and sometimes when I might drop an F-bomb, but I'm okay with that because that's my personality, right? Uh, I want to attract people that are similar to me. So uh, that's what I think those are the networking real secrets that people are really struggling with. And people are really scared to post, people are really scared to kind of post online. They were, they were saying things like, oh, it's silly. But these are what they realize. What they don't realize is that the silly things that you feel are silly and you don't want to post is pretty much the things that everybody's thinking, but everyone's too scared to post. So once you go out there and post it, you'll probably see a whole bunch of people messaging you either on the post or in your inbox saying that, you know, you're brave for posting. I always wanted to say something like that, but I never could. And that's when you really connect with people, I think, because posting your truth uh, mm -hmm. and then seeking advice when you're posting it. Uh, I think the person wanted to post about feeling silly because they knew they should have been positive, but their job search was really just getting them down and exhausting and upset. But I would just post that like, and maybe ask for some assistance and what maybe some advice from other people and what tips and tricks that they use. But I think people are very scared to put themselves out there on LinkedIn because what will their employers think? What will their brother with no job think? Like people are really scared to, you know, about what people, other people think. I think about four years ago, I realized like, I don't really care what people think. Um, so I think that's what makes me easier to kind of deal with on LinkedIn. But, uh, and I get it for a lot of people, they're still working for employers and I, I get it. Um, but if you're really going to put yourself out there and attract people, you have to kind of post what's relevant and resonates with you. Yeah, that, that's really true. I'm all for authentic connection, not just, hello, do you have a job? Um, directly. <laughs> um, but if you like something or if you comment on something, you come from the idea that you really like or want to share your opinion on that thing, not uh, necessarily with the intention that, you'll get or not a job with it. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it, it appears to be still a problem uh, for some people to share what they uh, really think and feel. Um, of course, it doesn't have to be offensive against their employer in any way, but you know, people are still afraid that if they post something, uh, how would the uh, employer react or are they even allowed? For me, that was a big question to understand what, to what extent we are allowed to communicate, right? Uh, on our personal media, even personally. So it doesn't make any sense. But never mind. like for people, just they 
they um, don't, they probably don't know that boundary because you have to really explore where the boundary is for that. It's tough, you know, I, I don't want to give people advice that's going to get them fired. But I also realize that like, people use that as an excuse not to do anything either. So my thing is that your employer, most most employers, if you're working for a big F5 financial institution around the world, they could care less what you do as long as you don't get them in trouble. So um, I think if you're posting things that are adding value to your community, very few organizations are going to say, hey, stop that. Stop bringing the community together. Well, you can't say things like... I highly doubt it, right? They're just gonna they're gonna say nothing, um, and they're gonna probably make it look like they they have no idea what you're doing. Uh, so they so if something does go wrong. Uh, trust me, if if you do something that is is not helping the community, and you're just being something that's gonna divide the community, I think yeah. you're gonna get a tap on your shoulder, uh, no matter what industry you work in. So uh, I think that's what people are trying to do. They're trying to figure out ways to. Uh, be selfish a little and you know, things are going to benefit them. But if you're trying to help the community, I think you have less, less to worry about from your organization. So when you're speaking with the job seekers, what do you think are the most common issues that they face in the market, in the job, job market? Why it's think, not working? I think their mindset mindset hundred percent, you know, you know, you have people with MBAs probably even more experienced than I do and more schooling than I, I do. And they feel deflated because they're not getting hired for a job where they have no experience, where I think they have to start looking differently. They don't even know what job they're looking for. And I had the same trouble when I was looking for jobs. I would just apply to everything that had the words AML in it, uh, not realizing like, well, what are my job requirements? What, where do I want to work? What do I want to do? What do I want to get paid? And it was funny because you know, uh, my friend Amber Scott and Rodney McInnes, they're the ones that like reached out. They said, hey, like, what is your dream job? Write it out and show me what it is. And when I wrote it out, you know, three months later, I had the dream job. And, you know, people would say, oh, that's like the secret. That doesn't make any sense. But, you know, when you start writing it out, then you start looking at what you want. And what I tell job seekers is write out the dream job description. So when you see it, you know it. But very few will because they really don't know what they want. And that's why they're not getting it. You know, mm -hmm. and then when they get something and they're unhappy, that's why you see a lot of people get into these positions and they're really not happy or they bounce to the same type of role from bank to bank. And they're not re really not that excited to be working there is because they really don't know what they want. And they're just going with either where the money is or where they think, uh, you know, it's going to be a better opportunity with a better title. Um, I've never really been concerned with title. Uh, so I just focus on like what would make me happy and give me the opportunities. And so the one, the one thing that was on my job requirement where I wanted more mentorship, like hand-to-hand -hand mentorship, like talks with the CCO, which is Peter Warwick. Uh, that's probably one thing I haven't gotten. And that's probably been the best thing for my career because he just kind of put me out there and say, hey, I'm going to put you in this position. Like you do your thing. And that's been the best thing for me. I've learned so much more by him doing that than him speaking to me every day and trying to coach me. That's just not the way I, I realized that's not really what I wanted. So the one thing that I thought I was going to miss out on has actually proven to be something that's actually been ben most beneficial to my career. That's really cool. Um, and about writing it out, I think this is not only for a new job seekers but i think this will be great also if you are waiting for a promotion or if you want to change within uh the different lines of businesses or uh, what's going on um in the organization within the same organization even right because you just need to put the criteria that you really want to achieve i think what happens too is people get people get i would say 
not manipulated, but I think people get discouraged. So let's say you start a job and they say, there's not any promotions until you've worked there for two years. That's already in your mind. I don't believe in that methodology though. I believe like, yo, if I work, if I work good and I'm good, I'll get a, I'll get a promotion in three months. And I've seen it happen. I've worked for organizations where that's what they say. Um, or, you know, you, you can't reach this level until you've done this or that. And then they go hire somebody from outside the organization and put them in that place. So I think what people have to realize is that a lot of these policies and procedures are, are not really in the fact that they're they're made to hold people that aren't really in the challenge the status quo uh but for people that think differently i think they're just they're used as a measuring stick uh to, for accomplishment so i think what people have to do is really just change their mindset um when i hear things like hiring freeze or those things don't mean anything to me whether they're true or not internally those things really don't mean anything because i'm sure if a top leader in the industry came to work for them for half the price i guarantee that hiring freeze is all of a sudden not a hiring freeze anymore they would hire that person if they could get a good deal so uh, i think organizations put those things in place uh for the majority of people but i think you have to start thinking like the five to ten percent of people that think a little differently that's really true yep i i agree uh policies are there but not everyone should follow all the time. It's not possible. Um, besides writing maybe a children's book, do you have any other projects or initiatives for next year? Do you have anything no, in store? Honestly, next year, I just want, like, I want to, I want to, <laughs> it's funny, we call it, I want to be the plug for, like, compliance. I want everything. I love when everything goes through me, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. I'm selfish like that because I think I can add value. I think if you gave me 100, I can give you 20 back. That's just the way I look at every, everything. I think I have a, an amazing network that can help me in anything I want to do. So really, I just want to see, I want all the opportunities to go to me and just be like, I want to be a media hub. I want to be out there putting out as much. I want to be more creative, to be quite honest. A lot of the video stuff I do is outsourced and I want to bring it in-house. So I think if I had any project that I want to do next year, I think if I had the ability to do some of the things that I pay people to do uh, with my thought process, I think I could start creating some really cool stuff for people. And that's what I really enjoy doing. That's why I'll stay up late at night doing the graphics for my AMA and stuff like that. That's what I enjoy doing. <laughs> that's cool. Um, I also like that. Although not that much video editing, but audio editing. Yesterday I was um, doing that. Um, so... Because at the end of compliance time, we always ask our guests for their prediction for the future. You already spoke a little bit about AI. We talked about that, but um, I love that question because it has so many different perspectives. What would be your prediction for the future of AML and compliance? You know, it's fine. I've listened to a couple of your episodes. So I knew this was coming. And then when the AI came thing, I touched with the AI because I didn't want to go into my real good answer at the end. All right. To be quite honest, I think the future of AML compliance is that the AML investigators and compliance professionals are going to have to gain a whole bunch of new and interesting skills. And what I mean by that is I think the investigations are going to change. And I think you need to be more well-rounded. So I, like we work for organizations, there's a lot of box ticking. I think the box ticking is for most likely going to have evolve into a little bit more of a comprehensive critical thinking. So I really think that the AML investigators three, five years from now 
are going to be the top echelon of AML investigators. I think the people that aren't doing that great of a job or don't really not invested as much into their career um, are going to be replaced with things like AI and machine learning. And the people running the AI and machine learning are going to be like top level investigators. Uh, so it's not just about technology. I think, I think you're going to start to see a little bit more emotional intelligence as well. Uh, Cause what I've noticed is that we talk a lot about, targets and all these organized there's very little people element into a lot of the things i think we do we hear a lot about numbers and targets and backlogs um what you don't hear is a lot about the people that are working for the institutions so i think that's where we're gonna change as well it's gonna be like that's gonna be the people in the organizations that are really gonna shine through uh not just the names of these big banks or the big financial institutions or even the cryptocurrency exchanges i think uh we'll we'll see a lot more emotional intelligence and diversity to be quite honest i know that you know it's a hot top button topic right now we're gonna to have to see a lot more racial and gender diversity in a lot of these organizations if they're gonna evolve you know we're seeing in Cryptocurrencies is like international transfers are so easy with cryptocurrency and other payment methods. So we're going to need more diversity on our teams in order to cover ourselves when it comes to investigations. And I think that's what those three things will be the future of AML. That's awesome. Great prediction. Let's, uh, let, let's see how it will work out. But I am sure that there'll be much more indeed on the um, emotional intelligence as well. Like you were, I believe, in the latest... Um, webinar last year of last year last week of PCIE uh, with Ray Blake who was talking about the FinCEN files and we saw the numbers we we saw how understaffed uh, uh, an agency is so without having the good report and skills to report it right and to to reach to those people like we were talking about storytelling in compliance how to make the story clear and straight how to present facts these are also softer skills that are not always within the set but are so important and i've read my fair share of stars when i was doing a little qc work and storytelling is hugely important i you know i said this one time on linkedin and i got a lot of you know this is not the place for creative writing and you know storytelling this yeah. is the place for facts that's true but no one on the other end wants to read just facts. This is your time to be creative and bring the story together so that the person doesn't have to read every single line of fact. They can just read, they can kind of go through the flow of your, your story and understand exactly what happened. People are visual, you know, and that includes agents for FIUs around the world. They're visual. They want to see the, they want to see the suspicious activity come to life. Otherwise, I think just like any other human, their, their brain is going to, whether they want to or not, their brain is going to tune out when they're reading your SAR if it doesn't really speak to the, the storytelling and understanding of what needs to be done, to be quite honest. Yeah. Today, company A transferred $1,000 to company B. <laughs> this is, this is a great story, right? Everyone wants to read that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, thank you for having the time to speak with us. And I really enjoyed our conversation. And it will be out there very soon. Um, I will include your LinkedIn profile so people can also connect with you uh, uh, through the show notes and uh, through the podcast. Definitely, definitely. I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Denitza. I appreciate you and everything you're doing for the community. Thank you, Stephen. 
Thank you for listening to Compliance Time. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review which will help others to find the podcast. Also, you can subscribe for email updates on our website cmpltime.com. And don't forget, check out our new blog. Thank you. Till next week.